again, everyone. I watched that, thank you. I watched that last week and I thought, wow, everyone's so unique and yet smiles, man. They just light up people's faces. It's so beautiful. So keep smiling. You look beautiful. Thank you for inviting me to your Door of Hope family here. As someone who lives far from home, for me, the Christian community really is in a very deep way, my family. Um, so it's really a pleasure to be part of your family this evening. So a little bit more about me. Um, well, actually, let me pause. I'm going to pray first. That's all right, because I need it. <laughs> and um, yeah, we want to welcome God here as he is. So Lord, we do acknowledge that you are here in this place. And despite my nerves or despite what everyone's walked into, what's happened in their day, what's on their heart, Lord, you are here to minister to each one of us. And so we want to offer this time to you and say, Lord, have your way. Lord, speak to our hearts. Bring us a little bit more into your truth. Help us to love you a little bit more deeply, Lord, and to know just how deeply you love us. And so we commit this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so as you know, I'm from the States, but actually uh, by the ripe old age of eight months old, my parents left America and we headed overseas to Indonesia where they were missionaries for the next, well, they were for 30 years, but I was there until I went back to university in America. So my whole childhood, I lived uh, in a very remote jungle area of Indonesia, just running wild, and it was, it was good fun. So I did my four years of uni in the States. I studied to be a primary school teacher. And after that, I did a bit of a gap year uh, in England. And then I applied and was accepted to go to be a part of International Schools of China, hence my reference to China earlier. So I was quite excited. I went over to China. Uh, I was about 23, 24 years old. And it was there in China that my husband and I started dating. Now, we actually knew each other from uni days. We had first met uh, at that time in life, and we were hanging on the same friendship group. But we actually hadn't uh, started a relationship until we both happened to be in the same city in China. Uh, by the way, I got there first, so. <laughs> uh, so yes, we were dating and ended up getting engaged. And on June 24th, 2006, we got married. There might be a photo coming up. Oh, look at those babies. Actually, we weren't really. Christoph was 29 and I was 26, so uh, nothing like the Misdoms, Danny and Christy, if you want to talk about babies getting married. <laughs> but that was us. Uh, that was in America, and we did a few, few weeks uh, in Europe. My husband's from Germany, so we saw his family and a little bit of a honeymoon. And then we went back to China, where we had this tiny apartment ready for us to move in as a married couple. Uh, it's these old Chinese block buildings, you know, ugly as all get out on the outside, and you climb up these sturdy stairwells and into our warm, cozy little apartment that we had. And we settled down and lived happily ever after. <laughs> or not. Because it didn't take very long for me to discover, walking into the kitchen one day, that Christoph washes dishes the wrong way. <laughs> the wrong way. Horror! I couldn't believe it. So here's my illustration. When you are washing dishes and you need to drain the knives, we have two different kinds of knives here, how are you meant to put them into the drainer? Do they go up with the potential of cutting you? 
do they go down with the potential of getting kind of gross from the gunk that's left at the bottom? What do you think? Chat with your neighbor for a minute, or type it up online if you're online. What is the correct way? All right. Well, whichever way it is, he was doing it the wrong way. And I told him so. And he disagreed with me. He was doing it the right way. My way was the wrong way. And so, a few days into our heavily, happily ever after, uh, we got our first marital argument. And it's a bit ridiculous, but it was serious. It was hurtful. There were tears over stupid knives. <laughs> How does this happen? Where does this come from? Last week, we saw that God had made men and women to live in harmony together, to rule the earth, to have families. How do we get to the point where we're arguing and falling apart over knives? Well, it wasn't really about the knives, was it? It was about control. Who would get their way? Who would win the argument? Who would be right? And as my husband would say, more importantly, who would be wrong? <laughs> Who's wrong? But to his credit, actually, Christoph realized this first, and he chose to lay down his preference. He is the better man. And it was a learning experience for both of us early in marriage, this fighting for control. Now, I'd like you to know that 17 years later, we are in perfect agreement about how knives should go in the dish drainer. Sharp knives go down, so as not to cut anyone. These knives go up. Everyone agree with me? If not, we can talk about it later. <laughs> However, 17 years later, now we argue about who got it wrong in the past, because neither of us can remember, and we both say the other person had it wrong. So there we go. Marriage, hey? So where did this tension, this need for control, this wrestling for my way come from? Adam and Eve didn't have that back in the beginning. So we need to go back and look and see where did that come from. As Christoph said in Genesis 1 and 2, we saw that God's plan was for man and women to work together, to help each other, to rule the world and to fill it. There was no hierarchy. It was a partnership of equals. If you missed the talk, I encourage you to go back and have a little look at it. So today, we're going to see what happens next. Where did it all go wrong, and how can we fix it? So at the end of Genesis 2, Adam and Eve are said to be in this beautiful world with a job to take care of it, and they were, quote, naked and unashamed. That's not a sexual statement. That's a statement that says they had nothing to hide, not from God, not from each other. There was complete innocence, freedom from any brokenness or loss. There's no fighting for dominance, no saving face, no trying to manage how the other person looks at you, no feeling inferior. And there's only one thing that can ruin this perfect world, because God's put a choice in that garden, hasn't he? It's a tree that he warned them about. Genesis 2 says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. The Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. 
God is saying, Adam, Eve, I give all this abundance to you. This garden is a gift, lavish in its provision for you. But I'm also giving you a choice. I'm not going to force my way on you. You have an opt-out button. I'm asking you to not eat from this one tree. It's not good for you. But nonetheless, I'm going to leave it here for you so that you have a genuine choice. Will you live my way or will you choose your way? And we know what happens in the story. Genesis 3, 6. When the woman saw, woman saw, that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. <laughs> together in ruling and together in falling. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And now shame is in this relationship, hiding. It's all changed. They ate, and in doing so, Adam and Eve had chosen their way over God's way. And I am sure that it was with a very broken heart that God explained the consequences to them. First, we know the temptation came uh, through a snake in the garden. Well, that snake was cursed. But then the jobs that Adam and Eve had been given to do to fill the earth and to rule over it, both of those jobs were directly impacted. Verse 16 says, To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. So ruling the earth and procreation, Adam and Eve's job from the very beginning, the thing they were meant to do together as equals, independence on one another, had now turned bitter. Male-female partnership was not anymore what God had intended it to be. Now the phrase, I don't know if it jumped out at you, the phrase that jumped out at me was verse 16, right at the end. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now at first glance, that might sound a bit confusing. What does this mean? Uh, your desire will be for your husband. That could almost sound romantic, or sexual even. But we find a clue in the next chapter. There's a conversation between God and the son of Adam and Eve, Cain. Now, Cain is jealous of his brother. I don't know about any of you, but if you have brothers and sisters, you know what it's like to be jealous of a brother or sister. Cain is jealous of his brother. And I think it's chapter 4, verse 6, where the Lord speaks to Cain. He says, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you but you must rule over it. Exact parallel words to what God has said to Eve. According to the Net Bible Commentary, the Hebrew noun desire refers to an urge to control or dominate. In Genesis 3.16, the Lord announces a struggle, a conflict between the man and the woman. She will desire to control him, but he will dominate her instead. And so began the battle of the sexes, with both trying to control each, 
the other, each side wanting their way when it comes to washing dishes properly or in much bigger ways. That conflict in the male-female partnership is a direct consequence of that disobedience to God, of living our way and not God's way. History past and life present shows us the struggle that we are in to have healthy male-female relationships. We're in a guy-girl dilemma. Throughout most of history, women have been treated as second-class citizens at best and possessions at worst. But in Australia, in some ways, has been a, a bit ahead of the game. You were the second nation to allow women to vote in 1902. So we're 120 years on, and maybe we don't feel the impact of that so much now, but to be given the right to vote means that your voice matters. It means that your opinion is worthwhile and that you are entrusted to help build the future of your nation. It's a big deal. But however, for all the advances towards equality, a simple Google search can reveal to us how very broken our society still is when it comes to male and female partnerships. According to the Australian Bureau of Statistics in 2017, which is before COVID, we know it's gotten worse than COVID, since the age of 15, 23% of women have experienced at least one incidence of violence by an intimate partner or ex-partner they may or may not have been living with. 23% means one in every four women in this country almost. That's a lot. The majority of men, next statistic, reported that their most recent incident of physical assault by another man was perpetrated by a stranger. In contrast, women stated that their most recent experience of physical assault by a man was someone that they knew at 92%. And 65% of cases, this occurred while in their own home. By those statistics, there is the highest likelihood that there are people in this room or online tonight, male and female, who have had this as a part of their story. Can I speak to you right now for just a minute? If you are in a relationship or a situation where you feel unsafe, where your boundaries are not respected, or you're experiencing emotional, spiritual, or physical abuse, please, please don't try to walk that journey alone. If you look at those statistics, you are not alone. Please reach out to someone you trust and talk to them, okay? I am so, so grateful for all the men and women who have worked to give women safety and equal opportunity in the world today, and we all need to keep fighting that fight, all of us. But, and there's a but, as a woman standing in front of you tonight, I feel I can only but say that I have a growing concern over some of the voices I'm hearing today. As women are gaining a greater voice, what are we using our voices for? Because the cries for, for equality can so easily slip into cries for down with the oppressors. The lifting up of women in society should not be done by the pushing down of men. Heaven forbid that we replace a patriarchy with a matriarchy. That's not what God wants. 
Now, I have not been to see the Barbie movie yet. I imagine many of you have. Um, I've heard that it's lovely, but I am super curious that if you just push back from the movie and have a little look, it's a movie about men and women and their relationship with one another, isn't it? If you just push back and take a little look at it, what, what is it really saying? What is our society telling us to think about men and women's relationships? I hope it's a good thing. So I do feel a growing tension, or maybe a tension that's already been there from Genesis, between the sexes. And I don't want there to be an even more dangerous backlash as we empower women, so to speak. Power can corrupt. But we, women of the church, women of Christ, we can't walk that road. We need to walk differently. How do we get out of this mess? This continual fight for control and dominance. Is there hope? Absolutely. Yes, there is. Absolutely. We have seen that this problem all started when humanity went their way over God's way. We, through our ancestors and today, we created the problem when we broke our relationship with God and death entered the world. Death with God, death in our relationships with one another, brokenness. But God, in his great patience and love, has been at work to fix this problem. And he sent Jesus to do it. He is our hope. Have you ever paid attention to how Jesus treated men and women in his life? I'm going to read you a longish, longish quote from a famous author and a lesser-known theologian, Dorothy L. Sayers. She was a contemporary of, say, Agatha Christie and C.S. Lewis. My husband and I were listening to an um, Undeceptions podcast a while back, and this quote jumped out. It was about her life, uh, and this quote jumped out to both of us. Here it is. Perhaps it is no wonder that the women were the first at the cradle and last at the cross. They had never known a man like this man. There has never been such another. A prophet and a teacher who never nagged at them, never flattered or coaxed or patronized, who never made arch jokes about them, never treated them either as the woman, God help us, or the ladies, God bless them, who rebuked without querulousness, had to look it up, that means whinging, whiny, and praised without condescension, who took their questions and arguments seriously, who never mapped out their sphere for them, never urged them to be feminine or jeered at them for being female, who had no ax to grind, no uneasy male dignity to defend, who took them as he found them and was completely unselfconscious. And I believe you can say the exact same thing about his relationship with men. Jesus treated all with dignity. He saw the person he didn't ignore their gender, their male femaleness. He valued it. And that's why Paul can write in his letter in Galatians 3, 26 to 28, so in Christ you all are children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, There's, nor is there male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. This verse says that in Christ, the things that used to divide us 
race, status, gender, no longer do. We are now one in Christ. We are all his children. So how do we do this practically? I'm a very practical, tell me how, I wanna know how. How do we live well together as men and women, male and female? How do we appreciate the humanity of another person and treat them with dignity? How do we learn from Jesus' example? I have two suggestions tonight. And the first one is, draw close to God. Or in the words of the Bible, walk with God. If we want to learn from Jesus, we need to spend time with him. It kind of makes sense. It's very simple. We are invited into an intimate relationship with him. I am sure that all of us have experienced, to some degree, a level of relational brokenness between one another. Jesus wants to heal those wounds. He wants to restore our broken dignity. He wants to remind us of our true identity, that we are his beloved, chosen, purified, precious children. He wants to tell us how proud he is of us, how much he delights in us, how much, and this is what's amazing, he's eager for us to love him back. This can be pretty hard to believe. But by drawing close to God, we're in a position to start allowing that truth to transform the lies that we have been living and believing. So I have a couple tips for how we can draw close to God. Uh, The first tip is to make space for God in your day. We all know that relationship needs time to grow. How can you carve out some time to be with God each day? Five minutes, 10 minutes, 30 minutes? It doesn't really matter what you do in that time. You could read your Bible, listen to worship music, go for a walk, have a conversation with him. But the key is to just remove the distractions for a little bit and just be with the one who loves you so much, who wants to speak truth and love into your life. So how do you carve out a little bit of space in your day to just be with the one who loves you? It's an invitation. The second one, uh, I'm just wondering, do we have any young people in this room? Last week there were heaps of children. Anyone under 10? Oh, anyone under 10? We can learn from the under 10s tonight. All right. If you are under 10, can I ask you to just scoot over on your seat a little bit and make some room for Jesus to sit next to you? You want to try that? Scoot over a little bit. Can you imagine Jesus sitting next to you? See, the reason why I'm saying under 10 is because under 10s have some pretty good imaginations. And it's pretty easy for them to imagine Jesus into their day-to-day life. That's my second point. To invite God into our daily living of life. What is it like to walk with Jesus into your classes or into your workplaces? What's it like to ask him how to write your essays or your emails? What is it like to actually pull an extra chair up at the table, and imagine Jesus there with you? Can you look for the ways that he's added joy and beauty to your day? Sunsets, Tasmania has beautiful sunsets. Friendly smiles, we saw so many of us on the screen. And just thank him for that beautiful thing you've noticed. What does it look like, not just for you to carve out a bit of space to be with God, 
but then in the rest of your day to invite him into it, to be with you. I went jogging the other day, and I think I was thinking about this message, and so I thought, huh, that Jesus is just jogging with me, and so I imagined him jogging along with me, and we were both out of breath, and we were both encouraging each other along, like, come on, Jesus, you can do it, Stacey, all right, here we go. And, you know, I smirked and I kind of laughed to myself, but actually he was present to me in that moment. And he wants to be. The reality is, if you are a follower of Jesus, he's in you, he's with you, he's in you. But it helps me to just visualize that a little bit, to, to flush it out a bit in my moment-by-moment daily living. What is it like to invite him to walk with me in my life? And the outcome of this, me walking with God and him walking with me, is that I start to heal. I start to see, hear the truth that he says about me and believe it. And we all, we start to mature. We start to grow in confidence as his beloved children. And that's been a journey in my life, <laughs> to get up here and be confident to speak. The more we come to a place of security and the love of God for us, the more we're able to extend that to others. That's a truth, isn't it? Which leads me to my second and final point. How do we live in a healthy partnership as male, female, guys and girls? Well, let's seek to build others up. The Bible has many one another passages. I'm gonna read a few. Think about them in light of male-female partnership, okay? Accept one another. Don't complain against one another. Bear with and forgive one another. Through love, serve one another. Clothe yourselves in humility towards one another. Stimulate, encourage one another to love and good deeds. Pray for one another. Be hospitable to one another. And there are more. Matthew Chamberlain, who's a local pastor, said something in one of the classes at Worldview that has always stuck deeply with me. He said, make it your goal in life to see others succeed. Now, I know it's a goal in my life to succeed as a wife, as a mother, as a teacher, as a friend, as a Christian. I want to succeed in all those areas, and that's okay. But what if instead I'm looking to see my husband succeed, my children succeed, my students succeed, my church succeed? What if that becomes my goal? And what is that like for us between male-female relationships to try to see the others succeed? I come from a very large extended family whom I love dearly and who love me dearly. But they're very traditional, conservative in their view of male and female roles. Men are supposed to be the leaders in the home and the church, and they're the protectors and providers and women submit to their leadership and serve their families. In fact, my uncle once said something to the effect that women in leadership would be the death of the church. So, as you can imagine, it's been a bit of a journey for me to get to this point, speaking in front of you this evening. One of the most significant experiences in my journey to this place was after I started preaching. I had to wrestle theologically, I had to wrestle culturally with what it meant to feel God asking me to step into this space. And I got up and I preached, 
And I think two different times, older men, older men in my church, whom I respect, came up to me and said something to the effect of, thank you, Stacy. You need to keep doing this. And for me, because of my history, that was huge. It was so powerful. I could have all the women encouraging me along, and they were. You know, they were behind me. Yay. But to have the, a man come and say that to me, that was big in my life. And to be married to my husband, who is constantly encouraging me forward and saying, you can do this, you know? Letting me fly, so to speak, rather than putting me in a cage. <laughs> wow, what power we have in one another's lives. And we have that power to tear down or to lift up by our words. Let's use it to lift each other up, to encourage the gifts we see in each other, to serve each other, to appreciate one another, to put each other's needs above our own. Like Jesus, to see the true value of that other person and to offer them dignity, love, respect. Wouldn't that make for some pretty awesome partnership? Cheering each other on instead of tearing each other down? That's the world I want to live in. That's the world I want my kids to live in. So, in conclusion, draw near to God. Find your identity in Him. Find healing in Him. And then go and build each other up. And when you do, you might not have so many conflicts over washing dishes. <laughs> Can I pray a blessing over you? All right. Father God, every person in this room is in a different journey with you. It's unique and it's precious. Lord, and everyone has areas to be healed in, areas to grow in, truths that they have not yet seen. Lord, would you be speaking the truth that each one needs to hear into their lives and be building them up, Lord. Be strengthening and equipping them so that they can go out and build others up. Lord, would Door of Hope Church be a church that is known for lifting one another up, for cheering each other on, for celebrating each other. And may you be glorified, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Thank you.